Welcome to That's No Longer My Ministry, a podcast that tells a different story about healing. A story of healing as discipline, as real, hard, and uncomfortable work. This is a place where we honor the journeys of marginalized folk actively purging years of programming and the consequence of never being centered. A place for acknowledging and moving through trauma. A place where radical self-liberation is sought and no is a complete sentence. You should listen if you're someone who wants to build the kind of life you don't need to escape from. I'm your host, Nadia, a black woman who has spent way too much time trying to fit into a number of spaces that weren't and still aren't meant for me. But that's no longer my ministry. I will say that I've been looking forward to this conversation uh, with you in particular because of just how unimpressed you are with whiteness. And I say this because not to be funny, not to be theatrical. I say this because sometimes I find myself like going down the spiral of rage. And and also I try to approach it from such a logical mindset. And I have I have so many flashbacks to conversations with you when you're like, this is just whiteness you don't need to do any more work to figure it out there is no logic there is no reason there is no way of making sense of it it's just whiteness period and so here we are today and the sooner you understand this the better off you will be (laughs) the better off we will be so i'm pumped i'm excited to get into this i feel like it's going to be like the ultimate rage fest um but we'll see we'll see there's going to be gems So as I start all recordings and interviews, how are you feeling right now in your mind and your body? How am I feeling right now in my mind and in my body? In my mind, I'm feeling okay in general. I think it's just I'm currently finishing up my dissertation before I move for a new job. And so while I'm very excited, the entire thing is stressful. And so I think I'm just I'm just okay because I think that I had to explain to my white advisor that she makes every step of my dissertation harder than it needs to be. And then looks at me crazy when I'm just like, why don't we just do this simpler, easier way that you let all the white folks do? And then everybody looks at me like I'm crazy. And I'm like, oh, okay. So there's that. And so I feel okay in my mind. In my body, I feel great for the most part. Like, I feel like summer is often my favorite season. It's when I like thrive. It's super sunny outside. I walked from campus back to my partner's home and it was great. And so physically, I feel good. I feel unstuck after a very difficult mm. couple of weeks. And so, yeah, that's that's what I'm feeling. I'm feeling great in my body. My mind is like, fuck all of this shit. <laughs> my body's like, eh, it's all right. We can live. We're chilling. When is your mind not feeling fuck all of this shit? Uh, that's true. You are correct. That is very much a default setting that I have with everything where I'm just like, what is this nonsense? And why do you want me to participate in this fast with you is always my question. By all means, live the fast that you are living. Please don't ask me to participate in the fast along with you. You could just tell me to opt out so I could go on with my life. And that is all that we ask. That is all that we ask. I do not feel like participating in the delusion. I do not feel like participating in these places where you're trying to take everything that I have and for what? And you don't even know what to do with it. The black TikToker strike tells me everything I need to know about the limits of white creativity. 
Mm. And I was like, man, you all have literally been stealing our shit for centuries and you have learned nothing. And I'm just like, wow, wow, this is the wildness. Yeah. But we, we are the ones who are depraved, right? We are the ones who are criminal. We are the ones who are less than. Okay. <laughs> All, All right. right, I guess. Okay, so we're coming in hot with some, <laughs> some feelings. But before we get too much into it, I would love for you to introduce yourself and what you do. You mentioned your dissertation, so maybe even some of your research to the listeners so they can understand why I have decided to tap into this mine of gold. Right, so my name is Justin. <laughs> I use he, him pronouns. I identify as a badass bisexual. I'm a Trinidadian as well as an American, but I really identify as being a Trinidadian because fuck this place. Hmm. Um, in terms of my work, I am finishing up my PhD in psychology. I specialize in social psychology specifically. And my areas of research are in impression formation and person perception. Hmm. So that's a lot of just what we think about the people, what we think of ourselves. That's basically my work. And so my primary area of research, because I have a million and one different things I find fascinating, but my primary area of research really looks at the intersection of race and gender mm. and how we make judgments of people, particularly as it relates to their sexual orientation. And so I tell my students is I take an intersectional approach to understanding gaydar by asking how your race and your gender impact how people make judgments about your sexual orientation. Whether they should be doing that is beyond the point because they're doing <laughs> it. And so I'm always interested in the process of what is actually happening. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's basically what what my work is broadly about. I also have some other work that I can talk about later if it comes up, but that's my primary area of work and that's what I specialize in. That's a lot of shit. That's a lot. And it's also, I mean, and also in thinking about the work that you're doing and thinking about the intersection of identities, I feel like some of the findings have to be pretty depleting and devastating sometimes. Absolutely. I like, I always enjoy talking about my research and particularly my master's thesis because what the work of that was about exploring how interactions of identities give rise to different kinds of stereotypes both positive mm-hmm. and negative so what i essentially had participants do is i asked them to generate 10 cultural stereotypes about a particular group and so one group might be men so tell me 10 cultural stereotypes about men and the cool thing about this work is that you didn't have to agree with the stereotype you just had to think it existed It didn't matter if you yourself were white or male or if those identities were relevant to you. The question wasn't, do you think these things are true? The question is, in our general cultural knowledge as a country, do these stereotypes about this group exist? And so I had people give me stereotypes of black men. I had people give me stereotypes about gay men. And I had people give me stereotypes about black gay men specifically as a group. And what I was able to show is that if you ask people to generate stereotypes for black gay men, they come up with different stereotypes than they would if you ask them to, to generate stereotypes for black men independently or gay men independently. This is a really good empirical test of intersectionality because what it demonstrates is that people aren't just collapsing categories together to get a sense of what people are doing. They're creating new things by having to engage with identities that they don't think should go together. Mm. Black and gay are identities that people don't think should go together, stereotypically. When you talked about like it being difficult, the number one stereotype for black men was criminal and it showed up 51 times, 51 people rated the category black men, which meant every single participant in my study identified criminality as the top cultural stereotype for black men. This study was done in 2019. Fuck. 
we are still there. And I use that example in my slides every time I teach to explain to my students why we don't live in a post-racial society. It does not exist. It won't exist because quite frankly, America would not exist as a country without racism as a structure. There is no way to understand America beyond racism and beyond white supremacy and beyond slavery. There literally is no way. Post-racial is not coming. It's you know, not. That's, it's funny too, because anytime anybody asks me why anything happens or like, why is it this way? I'm like, slavery. We can sum it up with slavery. So yes, like- Capitalism and slavery, those two <laughs> things. Like, that's the entire thing. Funnily enough, that's actually, capitalism and slavery is actually the title of a book written by the first prime minister of Trinidad and Tobago, who happened to be a historian by training. It was required reading for us when I was growing up in Trinidad, and his entire dissertation that he did at Cambridge was about the fact that the ending of slavery in the British Caribbean was due to economic reasons, and not because white people found their morality one day and decided this was a bad idea. And it seems simple, but you really do have to tell people that's not a thing. Like, we didn't moralize our way out of slavery. It became economically unsustainable. That's why it came to an end. I was like, what? This Side is, note. This but is that, the society that, this is we live in. This whole thing is going to go, I'm sure. Like, me going down, like, side note rabbit holes, but it's fine. I mean, can I choose a side note right now for my benefit? Sure. And I, By all I know means, we've talked about in. this. Like, I know we've talked about this, but I want to bring it to the podcast. And also, I feel like you're going to give me even more things to scoff out but like the stereotypes you find about black women what what are we what are we dealing with here because that's my fave right so i did so yes i looked at black men first and i looked at black women so i kind of did an inverse study i'm still actually looking and thinking through the data for black women what you end up seeing is a pattern of of masculinization of black women so a lot of these stereotypes are about masculine things aggressive welfare mother shows up quite a lot um unmarried shows up quite a lot poor shows up quite a lot aggressive shows up quite a lot these are things that you are already aware of right like when we think about the archetype of the welfare of the welfare queen that was created particularly in the next administration was was fabricated for that purpose of essentially more government oversight that is what we have and those things are still powerful we are talking decades later and these are still the cultural associations people have with black women and particularly when it comes to the masculinization of black women what it often does is exposes them to a particular type of gender violence that we never see for white women it never happens the kind of physical and emotional violence that people think black women can be subjected to because of a lack of humanity has a lot to do with them thinking about them in more masculine terms. Right. And so right. there's that. But yes, as you to your earlier point, it is very jarring. I enjoy the work I do a lot, but I have to remind people about how intense it can be to look and see empirically as a scientist, actual representations in the data of racism as a structure and be like, damn, we are still talking about this. This is still a thing. And it impacts you personally. Like that's that's the thing that gets me about your research in particular is that it's devastating and it it means a lot to you as a person. You're not just studying this theoretically. Like this is also the life you live, the experience right. that you carry every day. I just even yeah, it's real. It's real rough. Sometimes. I'm not studying I'm like, this stuff that deeply. Like I'm experiencing it at work and talking about it at work and trying to do like equity and inclusion work in my in addition to my actual job. But I'm not like mm -hmm. I'm not digging in and seeing that like 
everybody is saying a black man is a criminal a black woman is a welfare queen and also i mean i do get the aggressive thing literally every day but it's just it's baffling to me that you can sustain that kind of work nappy hair comes up a lot too in a way that i find so fascinating but also so deeply distressing i was like this is the thing y'all remember <laughs> and it's hilarious i'll tell you an even quicker sidebar <laughs> to demonstrate the mediocrity of whiteness so my chair chair my current department which people can look up where i go to school it's actually quite fine but the chair of my current department when everybody graduates there's a system called a kudo board where people can just mm-hmm. post really nice messages for you to see afterwards, right? Four people graduated this year from the KU psychology department. I was the only black person. The other three were white. Okay. He left messages on everyone's board. And the messages he left on my white colleagues' boards re- referred to their capacity for excellent research, how skilled they were as teachers, like how proud he was of them as a colleague. His exact words on my post was that he was going to miss the sound of my voice echoing down the hallway. I screenshotted it so I could send it to my advisor once I'm finishing my dissertation so I could explain to her why I don't want to fill out a fucking climate survey for my department. But he said, wrote on an actual CUDA board, I'm going to miss the sound of your voice echoing down the hallway and then wished me, vaguely wished me well on the rest of my journey. Mind you... I have published two academic articles so far. One of them is in a top tier journal. I am the only person graduating in my current year of students. I have a job. I have won numerous awards for my scholarship, for travel, for research. I've served on different boards. I have done all of the professional work of being a solid, respectable, well-trained social psychologist. And all the chair of my department can offer me is that he will miss the sound of my voice, which doesn't echoing. sound American, echoing down the hallway. You're loud. Because I'm loud. Like, are we not, like, are, did, did he not think before writing that? This is like, this is the kind of shit that... It's almost comically racist. Do you know yes, that, like... It's comically racist. You're like, wow, what my world whole, are you living in? Through my whole career... I feel like the most prominent piece of feedback, and and really I don't get a lot of other feedback. I'm pretty self-sufficient. I do shit well, I get it done. Everybody just moves on. And the most common piece of feedback, which I didn't realize how problematic it was until I started talking to other black women and realized our most common piece of feedback is that they appreciate how warm and welcoming we are. As if that wasn't a thing that humans should just be. Like, right. like it was like, right. you're just so bright. Like you have nothing about my work ethic, nothing about my deliverables, nothing about how I'm working amongst mediocrity and keeping it all together. Nothing. Just that I'm warm, which they don't expect from black women, that I'm welcoming, which they also don't expect, but they're just so fucking happy that they got the one that's welcoming. Like, it's just, it's so, and so every time I hear something like that, I'm like, please don't give me that feedback. Please give me something that actually reflects my value. Especially because, to your point, you cannot convert warmth and welcoming into a promotion. It is absolutely useless. useless. And it is actually no indication of your capacity, nor is it a requirement of your actual job. And the reason why it's so surprising, related to my work, is because you masculinize Black women. And being unwelcoming, right, and being cold are male characteristics, are characteristics we associate with men 
largely. And so this idea that a black woman could actually be woman welcoming is already a shock, despite the fact that those same characteristics would be viewed negatively and are for white women who are far more privileged, but also have their own limitations within broader male structures. So it really is just a clusterfuck any way that you look. But yes, that was a sidebar about how my super racist share left this message on my public board for people to see. And I literally was just like, wow. And just, Trash. Comically just ironic too racist. with the research. Comically racist. <laughs> Especially because the social psychology department at the university that I attend specializes in stereotyping, prejudice, and racism. Those are the areas of emphasis that we focus on, as well as intergroup relationships. I think it is fucking hilarious. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Okay, that's that's a lot. That's a lot, but appreciate <laughs> all the sidebars, all the knowledge. We're gonna move into the first segment called So You've Been Told. And this is where I pull random things from the internet and <laughs> we discuss what it means to you, how it resonates, how it lands. Now, this was a particularly interesting um, adventure for me because I was like, what? For this one, I was like, what would I want to talk about with Justin? And I decided I wanted to talk about Jasmine Sullivan. <laughs> Because, because you know me. Because I know you, because I just don't think enough people spent enough time on hotels. Um, one of the greatest albums that we were ever blessed with. A masterpiece. And, and the last time I saw you, I remember I was doing yoga on a like a balcony in in the Palm Springs area in the heat and you were listening to hotels down below so I could hear you listening and singing along but I was doing my yoga practice and it was just a very that was a very wholesome experience we love it we love it <laughs> together while not being together I I love those moments yes so I pulled some things um just some quick things one so the first one I pulled is honest it's like the name of the song but the lyric don't forget to come pick up your feelings mm -hmm. tell me about how that lands with you it lands so strongly with me i love it i love it because i feel like it affects me personally but it's also an aspirational thing for me and other people as well too because really as you point out this album is a masterpiece and it's particularly a love letter to black women particularly mm -hmm. And black women completely comfortable in their complexity and in their messiness, which is not a space we enjoy allowing black women to exist in. You either have to be a superhero or you have to be a, a villain. And there's no in between, which is also racism, right? To narrow people down to just yes. one of two things. Those are the only options you could exist in. White folk get to be complex. They get to be anti-heroes. They get to be mysterious. People of color, and particularly black folk, don't get to be complex. You are either a slave or you are an Uncle Tom. These are the boundaries, right? Mm -hmm. yes. So I love it for that. But also personally, I love the energy of it. And I love the Aries energy of it. Like, I love that song. I love the lyric because it really is just a matter of situating Black women in the security of not having to accept the bullshit from somebody and mm -hmm. being like, you had your opportunity, you fumbled the bag, and now I'm going to be off to the next thing and you're going to be mad about it and you will die mad about it. I'm not looking back. Yeah. I'm not apologizing. All I want you to do is come pick up your feelings and go on. And go. It's like something that I feel like 
my heart has said, but I haven't said it aloud. So when I first heard that, I was like, how did she know? She knew, she knew that we needed to hear that. I feel like I've spent hours just like pontificating on something. And then it's just like, actually, I just needed to tell you like not to forget to come pick up your feelings and just go get the fuck out. Please get the fuck out. <laughs> it's so, it's amazing. <laughs> A flex. And Aries flex. And we stand. We stand. What other choice do we have? We stand. I love it. And I love what you said about it owning its messiness and complexity. Like even the intro song bodies, like the the moment I heard that and just like, you know, gotta stop getting fucked up. <laughs> what did I have in my cup? I don't know where I woke up. Like all these things, I'm just like a whole mood a lifestyle a like a point in time that a lot of us have experienced but like black people black women really aren't allowed to claim moments like that otherwise they suffer from being completely villainized by anybody who saw them as some kind of mystical magical negro yep and, and i necessary and racist but nobody asked for it nobody asked for it and it was just like nobody wow. asked for it this came to us as a gift from Jasmine Sullivan to just be able to own who we are. And yeah, that that just really, it just got me. This is from The Other Side, which I love that song. And these two lines, I just love them as standalones. I just want to be taken care of because I worked enough. Mm-hmm. Big mood. <laughs> That's also how I feel. Like, I feel like the beauty of this is that especially for me as a Black queer man, this is, as I said, an album written for Black women. It centers Black women, and the entire conversation is about them. I think this is actually what I love most about it. You talked about how it's a masterpiece, and it is. And what I think I like about it is it has a very Toni Morrison quality. Whiteness is peripheral to this entire album. And we don't really recognize it because that is most of Jasmine Sullivan's work. She's talking mm -hmm. about us and to us and with us white folk can peek in and so they can still be fans but they really are engaging an entirely different experience than the rest of it it feels so deeply familiar hmm. and so even stepping back i love that i think about that in my own relationship and i think about that in terms of my responsibility to black women who i am in community with which is not to ask them to do unnecessary labor that they are already doing that i don't even know of or appreciate to just not do it to always in my mind i with you i've said this before with all my my black female friends I stand for Black women extending luxury in their lives. If you can afford it, offload everything. Groceries, laundry. If you have the money for it, I firmly believe Black women should just not do shit beyond what they actually want to do. If you have the money to, to, to outsource it, please go on. If we have to exist in capitalism, it should be good for something. Outsourcing is one of those things. That's so true. And so I think about that particular line in that way, just about like, and also reminding black women to take up that space for themselves. Rest is a form of resistance. Mm. And you do not actually owe anybody your work. You just don't. And that's not a tax that you have to pay for existing as a woman in the world. You don't actually owe anybody shit. That's very hard to say because the world has a vested interest in telling black women that they owe everybody everything. Right. But I think that in that way, Jasmine Sullivan's work is resistance more than anything else. But in this really accessible way that is about eroticism and the body, which I think is also related to Charlize's work too. This mm. way of thinking about pleasure is essentially what she's trying to do. Get us to reclaim pleasure 
fully in ways that Black women have not been able to access or, more accurately, have been villainized for trying to access. Mm -hmm. Yeah, damn, all of that. respond to a single thing in all of that greatness i i read the line and i'm just like nobody ever i feel like nobody ever tells black women that they've worked enough even even in the workplace setting it's never that i've worked enough i'll go above and beyond and it's never that it's enough it's like what are you going to do next what are you going to do more of how can we see how you can lean in more fuck lean in i hate when people say that but how can we see? Because that's a white fuck woman. Fuck that too. Lean in. Lean in for what? Back the fuck up. I'm gonna back up. I'm gonna back lay the down. Fuck up. Lay, lay, go lay down. The nap ministry said, go lay down. Absolutely. Lay the fuck down. Man, if, if any black tired. women. Whiteness is tiring. We are tired. We need to go lay our asses down. If any black woman who's listening has not followed the nap ministry on Instagram, go get your life, get your life, get your life, get your life. You miss out. Take your nap. Take your nap. Lay down, follow the nap ministry and then lay down immediately after. And then get someone to pay for your shit because you've worked enough. Okay, this last one is from an interlude. Love the interludes. And this one I like because it is, it's an interesting, complex situation, I think. So, we're talking about men, probably black men, and it starts with plus their egos are often way too fragile to ever handle a woman who owns and has any real agency over her body. Mm-hmm. And we're to blame as well. well yeah. Because we're out here telling them that the pussy, the pussy is theirs is when, when in actuality, actuality it's ours. It's ours. Yep. Love it. Love it. This is literal feminism, right? And because we skip over it it doesn't land as much as having on one of when beyonce had archie mamanda and gotiadichi reading the passage from her text that is feminist praxis that is combahee collective that's audrey lord that's bell hooks which i don't think we'd often situate in women who belong to the class background that jasmine sullivan belongs to which i think is a problem that has to do with just how racism shows up writ large but what's really powerful about that is that it's absolutely true and I can say it as a black queer man, as a black man also, our egos, black men, men writ large, are incredibly fragile. It is the most hilarious and sad thing when you think about the ways in which masculinity, particularly the toxic variety, makes men far more fragile than the illusion of masculinity that is all about strength is actually supposed to support. And I'm just like, y'all. This does not make any sense. This is madness. And you want us to participate, you want us to participate in the farce. And I'm just like, I just can't. I can't. And it's about what we were talking about. It's about the ways in which Black men, unfortunately, particularly cis, het, Black men, often do the work of white supremacy by imposing limitations on Black women that they have neither the right nor the range to do. And that is essentially what that is a resistance to, this idea that we are also participating in this kind of very honest, introspective way uh, in our own oppression by lying. And of course, it's difficult, as you said, complex, because the lying isn't necessarily because we couldn't tell the truth, but because we have made women, and Black women in particular, so deeply unsafe in our communities that the truth has actual material and emotional consequences. Because most men don't actually take feedback well, which is arguably the thing that would make sex, which is the thing that we're specifically talking about here, would make sex better 
Yeah. And because most men don't trust women to understand their own bodies, they actually don't even receive the feedback as honest feedback. They twist it into something else to serve their own egos, which ends up then making the entire sexual experience negative. And if it, it is a mindfuck. Like, you really are just like, do you see yourself running on this cosmic hamster wheel? Could you just get off? <laughs> could you just get off? Like, could you just not? This limited, perfect, magical scope. Like, you want the perfect black woman. And what's the perfect black woman look like? A servant, ultimately. And that's dark to say, but that is also what most black men want. Or it's what they think they want. Or more correct, this was like, oh, it's what they've been socialized to expect. Right. And so that, to me, is a response. It's a call to, re to, uh, to allowing and opening up space for black women to not wait for permission to own their own bodies their sexuality and how they would like to interact with these crusty niggas in their lives <laughs> these crusty niggas <laughs> crusty what i tell you cisset black men in particular crusty crusty i can't i can't deny that that's that's it's not like it's an untrue statement i just felt crusty. it in my spirit Jimmy, crusty i will say it as myself a black man crusty i include yeah. myself in the narrative crusty it took a but long yeah, time that's what that says to me yeah i think it took it took a long time for me to decide that yeah i don't know how to express this without I mean, this is how I feel right now. I just feel like it took me a long time to realize that I did not have to be a servant to black men. Mm. And that sucks. Like, and people know me, people know how outspoken I am. People know that I have, I've always had agency over myself, but there have been so many times, especially in my sexual history with black men, where it just did not feel that way at all. And there was no, there was, like you said, like they don't receive feedback well. That's such an understatement. Like the violence that can come to you when you give feedback about or your when own you're just body. honest. Because God forbid you tell them how to engage with your body on your own terms. Like it's such a ridiculous notion. I was like, what is wrong with you? That is what agency looks like. It's not the point to enjoy the experience. And that's the rub. It's not actually. We think it should be. We would like it to be, but ultimately it's not. Because if it were, we would have constructed our society to allow men to receive feedback much better. Because how do you get better at anything, including sex, is actually to listen to somebody and do what the hell they ask you to do. It's really not that complicated. But my God, the way men will fall on the swords of their egos rather than tell you, just say that they won't do what they were supposed to do and just adjust especially because and this is the last thing i'll say about this the, the the funniest thing about that entire thing is that if a partner in this case a black woman is talking to you about feedback it also suggests that she trusts your capacity to apply said feedback mm -hmm. and then improve what you are doing in the interaction otherwise she would not waste the time to offer it especially given as you point out the violence that can come along with taking that particular risk right it suggests that she already believes you have a capacity if she gives you advice to alter your behavior in a way that's going to make the sexual experience better for everybody involved. And my whole thing about masculinity that's hilarious to me is that men are so offended by this and then they are far more likely to take advice from people that they are not sleeping with, namely their colleagues and their friends who they're talking to, than the person who they're actually in a sex relationship with whose pleasure is tied to their experience of pleasure. And in my head, I'm like, this whole thing is a fucking mess. It's a fucking mess.
But that's what I'm gonna say on that. That's a whole other podcast. That's all. A that's all we need to say. Mess. That's all we need to say. A fucking mess. But yes, Jasmine Sullivan will be here to save us all. But a fucking mess. A fucking mess. And I think that now y'all understand why I invited Justin to the podcast. I think you've gotten a good idea of how this is gonna go. Um, for those of you who are not enjoying this, feel free to tune the fuck out. Like, feel free. Feel free to jump off. This is who Choose we are. Yourself. Choose yourself. It's fine. This might not be for you. It's if it's not right. your ministry, it's ours. It's, it's our ministry. Ours. It's fine. Press on and be glad, friend. All right. So we've gotten to the main event where I am going to ask you what is no longer your ministry. I have to think about this because I've listened religiously to every episode of this podcast so far because I'm a fan. I'm a fan as well as a friend. Like I'm a fan. And so I had to think about it carefully. What is no longer my ministry as I approach 30? What is no longer my ministry or one of the things that is no longer my ministry is no longer waiting for my life to be perfect in order to start treating myself better. Mm. That is no longer my ministry. Waiting for things to fall into place before I start actually allowing myself to enjoy my life. Hmm. That is no longer my ministry, particularly I think as a graduate, we are so used to delayed gratification for years of just study and work and being a poor student and just like grafting by that I think I at least have forgotten what it's like to not put myself first in some ways and, and to allow myself to enjoy the things that I've, I've worked hard for in my life, to enjoy the spaces that I'm able to enter, to go on vacations, to rest, to to try to not lose experiencing life in the rush to create it. Is that, that no longer my ministry to wait for things to be perfect before I allow myself to enjoy my life. That's a hard one to practice because, I mean, especially, well, as a grad student, and honestly, once you enter the workforce too, it's like everything is work, 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 work. And how are we going to be better? And how are we going to, you know, be published and get our name out there and connect with the right people? So you're networking and it's just like work or labor in general just becomes this all consuming concept. And I'm kind of curious about how you identified that you were missing out on just like living and getting wrapped up in your work instead yeah it's funny that you talk about it because about the working thing the one context i'll offer maybe more for the listeners than for you because we are already friends is that being Trinidadian, being from the caribbean which i'm sure is a similar thing in your own culture being from nigeria is this idea that you really do just have to work all the time like i remember even my dad's favorite thing was the only place that success comes before work is in the dictionary that was his favorite line and i think about and i love that and I, it was a good thing to think about as a young person but it really did hyper focus me into like work and what's next and what's next and this next thing and being successful and setting up my career and blah 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 and so really how I became more aware of it is how I become aware of most things, which is through community, having good community of people who you trust to talk to you when they see things happening. And actually, just today, before I came over here, I had a really good conversation with a friend of mine in here in Lawrence, Pego, who was saying to me, one of your trauma responses is that you don't like to be celebrated. And it's true. Like, I am very much the person that will happily plan things and get things together. And I feel like I support my friends really well because that's a gift that I have. And I think the goal of, of the next decade of my life hitting 30 is going to be how to turn that attention inward and to feel more comfortable paying that much attention to me and supporting myself and sharing for myself in that way. Because I think one of the ways 
I became aware of that is that I'm deeply uncomfortable with self-celebration. My God, I'm like literally getting a PhD and I still was just like, it's not a big deal. Like I'm not going to like post it anywhere. We're just going to like slide by. And then folks are like, wait, you have a whole ass doctorate. And I'm just like, yeah, yeah, but it's not a big deal. And I just move on. And they're like, wait, wait, go the fuck back. What do you mean this is not a big deal? And I was like, it's really not. Huge deal. And it is, but it's because both from my own culture, but also the culture of graduate school writ large is always, as you said in your work, what is next, right? Mm -hmm. Like my advisor, when I did my master's thesis, I was the only person in my cohort to have an honors, to be awarded honors my defense, which is a recognition of the solidness of the written document, as well as the oral argument that you have to make to your committee, right? right? There are three of us in my cohort, I was the only one that got that honor. Fine. And I remember the very next person my advisor asked me was, wasn't even congratulations. She was like, so when are we going to publish this paper? Now, the paper is published. I worked on it all over the summer, right after my defense. But it was that moment of it's never about sitting in the moment of enjoying what has been happening and all the work that you put in to get to a particular place. It's not about marking time, being aware of how mm. much you've grown and how much you've done, and just being able to actually see that realistically and not to undermine it. So almost automatically, my mind is always on what's the next step and what's the next step and what's the next step. And when you do that, you are not really living life. You're planning your life. And it's not the same thing. And then what happens when the moment passes? And so I think in that regard, those are the things that allowed me to look inward to be like, this is actually a thing you need to, you need to figure out in the next decade. Like you, I'm sort of giving myself the entire range of my thirties to figure out how to direct all the attention I share with my community and my friends inward. And I think so that's, take, I think that's it can take I more than a decade. Maybe, but I'm, 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 I'm obviously ambitious, right? Clearly, I'm getting a PhD. Clearly, I'm just like, certainly we could do this in like a decade. A solid decade of therapy and we could get there. Like at, <laughs> at the age of 40, I'll be like self-actualized. Probably not, right? But like, that's like my, again, another trauma thing, right? Like, oh, it has to be, I can do it quickly. I can do it well. I can make it efficient. Yes. You're right. Maybe it will take my entire life to get there. And that is actually all right, because the only person imposing the limitation is me. So I could just not. I could just change my mind. You could. It's. I mean, it's a lot harder than we're making it out to be. And I feel like... Right, right. Without like, sliding by the work. But yeah. yeah. What's interesting too, and I, I don't know if this resonates with you because you're, we talked about like the, the compulsive feeling of like, what's next? I'm definitely that person, but I also find myself even now, even doing this podcast, thinking about like, but is it big enough? And I hate that feeling because then you're constantly undermining yourself and you absolutely aren't celebrating any milestone because you're like, yeah, yeah, I got my doctorate. Okay, cool. But it didn't change blah, blah, blah. It didn't fix this. It, I held this event and it brought people together and it was great for the community, but racism still exists. Like that's, these are the kinds of things that plague me. And so I wondered too, if that's part of like, why you have struggled to really be self-congratulatory and like actually bask in all of your success. Yeah, definitely. I am right there with you in that sort of like running thoughts of like, and like, it didn't change this thing. I'll give you a perfect example that I think is relevant to what we're talking about and involves another one of our great friends, Darren, who hopefully he'll get on here eventually. But like, he, um, I remember him talking to me about how he also recognized my capacity for not self-celebrating. And I remember him saying to me, Justin, you do realize that you have a job in possibly the worst economy for the for academia because of COVID-19. You're like graduating in five years, you're getting a PhD, you have like a job, 
you were like teaching and like winning awards and like doing all these things. Like, like work is actually happening. Like you're not behind. Because I would always be like, I feel like I'm behind. And I feel like maybe I'm not making enough money. And I feel like, you know, maybe my life isn't going to change like radically. Like I feel like I should be more comfortable than the way I am. And that's just I need to work hard though. I get another job. And he was like, you are spiraling. Please slow down. None of that is necessary or true. None of it. And that's the thing, like our minds always lie to us to, to a certain degree. And so having valuable friends that reflect the truth of, the, of, what, of what is actually happening for you to always refer to is really, really helpful. But yes, you and I are in that sense. I am definitely that person of life, but it didn't fix this thing. My, I still can't just take care of my family. I still just can't like go on this really expensive fucking vacation and not have to worry about it. I still can't. And I think that in some ways, it's really about the tyranny of capitalism, among other things putting together a timeline that we forget that we are in charge of. Mm. And so to your point, how I actually came to this point of actual better happiness was just redefining what success had to look like for me and really making it super simple where the contours of it can change. But the core of how I think about success in myself, at least professionally, is the same. And that made me so much happier because then I didn't feel like I was chasing this illustrious dream of teaching at an Ivy League institution and being like this super famous African-American professor. I'm just like, and those things might still happen, but they're not actually my job. That's not right. my work, ultimately, right? That's the work of exceptionalism that whiteness tells you you're only valuable as a Black person if you're exceptional, right? That's the, the tiny white man on your shoulder, Tony Morrison talks about whispering in your ear, but like, you have to do bigger as a Black person, right? You, it, it can't just be what it is. It has to be extraordinary. It has to be gigantic. It has to be Oprah-like, maybe. But also, no. And it doesn't lose any inherent value because it's not bigger. Sometimes you should just stop. Because that's the thing about whiteness. It's always expanding. It takes over everything. It has no sense of boundaries. And so when we do that to ourselves, we are in effect practicing whiteness. That is a, a white way of everything always has to expand. You can't ever say, this is actually far enough. I have all that I need. If I want to go somewhere else, I can, but I'm not taking up space with no purpose. That's whiteness, taking up space for no, for no reason for nothing beyond just you want to be expansive. Why? Why Why do you want to center yourself? What are you trying to do? How does it serve others? And so because of that, I've tried to think about it in that way. And so redefining and mm. putting boundaries on my success, which sounds counterintuitive, has been helpful for me because I free myself from thinking I have, to, I have to be a god in order to be valuable, right? Like I have to be perfection. My work has to be groundbreaking every single time. Maybe not. Maybe, Maybe not. not. And certainly not when the mediocre white folk who I meet and encounter are making more money than I am and are enjoying all the spoils of success that I would like to enjoy. And I'm not doing any of the work. Why do I have to work harder? Why? Ugh, good question. Why do I have to work harder? Why does it have to be me? I think Why that... Why is that my responsibility? You could just level up. <laughs> right. That's a tall ask for white people. Um, it's I feel true. Like, true. I, like, said it, I said it and I didn't believe it. So I'm happy that you were just like, no, friend, it's not a thing. You're right. It's not. It's just not. It's they will never outpace us. I've talked to some uh, people of color on my team because, you know, they talk about these things and I'm like, but you don't understand that white people have never had to rise to the occasion. Never. They've never seen a non-mediocre white person. So if they don't have that representation then how are they going to do better? They've never seen it before. They've seen Ooh. the people who really overachieve. We're right here. 
doing the work, but they've never seen it in themselves. So why should they inspire themselves to do any different? They won't. They've and what are the by. consequences for not doing so, right? Only people of color and black folks suffer for being mediocre by white standards. But white folks are allowed to be mediocre and there are no serious cosmic consequences for white mediocrity. There really aren't. You just kind of pass it along. And I'm like, oh, we just letting this go? Oh, go on to oh the okay. Thing. Like, if you don't, if you're not successful in your role as a mediocre white person, you'll find another role. It'll probably pay better. There is no consequence. Like, yeah, you will absolutely fail forward. Oh, man. There's a brightness to fail forward. And I'm just like, wow. The, the hold that whiteness has on my mental health in particular is fucking vile. Like, things that you don't actually believe as a person in like your identity, they have become like the internal hum that your depression clings onto or your anxiety clings onto or whatever it is. And so I think it's interesting that we've identified like where these beliefs have come from, but I'm actually more interested in the work because it's the work for me. And mm -hmm. you talked about like having a different definition of your own success. And so I'm curious about like what that definition is and how you're uprooting whiteness from the way that you move through your life and also your career. That's a good question. So yeah, I mean, I, when I said simple, I really meant it. Like I remember saying to myself, because I'll give a brief background and then I'll, I'll go back to my answer because I think you will understand this being in predominantly white spaces where the representations of blackness that exist are sometimes um, extraordinary because they have to be. That's the only way they would exist at that level. So the people that we look up to, the people that I look up to in the academy who are black are gods. Their work is like groundbreaking. They're like MacArthur genius grant winners and they're professors at Yale and Stanford and they've created these like groundbreaking theories that I use in my work or they're like intersectional black feminists and they do like really interesting work in Africa. And I'm just like, wow. And so when I was growing up and coming up through grad school and through undergrad, these are the folk I looked up to and who I tried to model myself after. And that wasn't necessarily a bad thing, but it set the bar so much beyond what anybody really should be should have to accomplish and certainly what my white colleagues were required to accomplish and it put a lot of undue pressure that wasn't that was not mine to bear and that i thought if i didn't meet those criteria i had failed as a scientist i had failed as a scholar like i wasn't i was a bad professor i was a bad scholar if my work wasn't like that mm. and so it took a lot of hard work to have to walk myself back from that edge because that burden is violent yeah. And I think that I had to get really comfortable with stepping outside of my own ego and asking myself, why do you think you are so smart? Like, why do you think you are so special that this is the thing that you have to aim for? Like, this is your destiny. Maybe not. And you have lost no significance. You have lost no space. You have lost no humanity by not doing that thing, by picking a different path, by moving slower, by aiming lower. Like none of that makes you a, a worse person. It might very well just be where you are. I made my definition of success very, very narrow and very programmatic. I want to be paid a living wage for the, to do a single job. That's the first criteria. Mm. I do not wish to have to have a second job unless I choose to do so because I'm interested in, in, the, in the extra work. Not interested. I would like wherever I land in whatever field in whatever area to work a single job and it could be complicated, but one job that pays me a living which allows me to take care of myself as well as my family, both in the United States and back in Trinidad. So that's the first criteria. 
The second criteria, Darren asks me, you know, what does your best life look like, right? Mm. Like in terms of how you fill your life, I want to be able to have a life that allows me to divorce my identity as a professor and as a researcher from my identity as a Black queer man living in the United States. Mm. And the thing about many of those elite people I looked up to is that the nature of the academy at that elite level does not often allow for a separation between who they are as a person and who they are as a scholar. Mm. And I never wanted to have to sacrifice my life to my job. My parents were wonderful. I didn't grow up with whiteness as a reference being from Trinidad. And so, like you pointed out in the beginning, I'm deeply unimpressed with it. I'm deeply unimpressed with it because I just don't understand where it gets the fucking goal. I just don't understand. <laughs> and so because of that, my mom would always say, you must never kill yourself for a job. Because if you die, the, your boss will simply call and say, who is coming to replace Dr. Pradi tomorrow? And that'll be the end of the conversation because that is actually their job. That's what they are in charge of, making sure the business runs, making sure that the center is staffed. That is their job. You must never sacrifice your, your life for a job. It is not worth it. And the loyalty will never be repaid. Mm. And I took that lesson from her very seriously. And so my second big tenant about how I want to live my life is I want to have a life that allows me to separate my job from my other identities. I want to be able to exist as a black queer man and not just as Dr. Preddy, the social psychology professor working at X institution teaching this thing. Yeah. And at those high levels, that is impossible. The sacrifice of success in some of these spaces require you to blend those things so closely together in order to be successful. There is literally no way and it doesn't even get any better after you get a permanent job and you have tenure. The explanation is that you just continue to work as hard as you have worked. And I just knew that was not going to be for me. Yeah. That was the second thing. And then the third thing I wanted to always have was to be able to live and exist in a place where I felt like I had constant community that was accessible, either virtually or inclusive. Right. Mm -hmm. I knew for a fact that there are states I refuse to live in because the population of black and brown folks is simply not high enough for my liking. I'm not interested. It will never happen. <laughs> and so for me, I just had to get really careful about like, what do you want your actual life to look like? When you go to your home and you think your home is in a safe place, what does that look like? And what that looks like for me is communities of black and brown folk. I do not feel safe with whiteness. I never have, I never will. It's a no for me, now and forever. And so I had to think carefully about what that meant for where I could even get a job in the academy and spaces that I could enter and the institutions I want to be able to teach at. And what does that look like? Because I think ultimately what I wanted was to figure out how to be the best servant I could be to other people in a way that was healthy for me. Because ultimately we, we, I, we think as black people about expansiveness is not about me taking up more space. It's about me extending my reach to cover more people. Right. And so because of that, I had to ask myself, where do you want to live? Who do you want your students to be? What kind of impact do you want to have? What do you want to impart? What do you need to do to make sure that you are the best version of yourself so you can be the best version of yourself to your community? Because lots of people helped me become the, you know, the professor and scholar that I am, and they were Black women. My first advisor and undergrad was a Black woman, so I went to a historically Black university. Yeah. So shout out to Hampton for that. And it was brilliant. And, it was, and she was absolutely brilliant. And she was the first person that was like, you should think about being a researcher. Your mind works in a way that suits science and suits psychology in particular. You might want to think about this. And that was the beginning. And so I always think to myself, how do I extend 
mm. that that mentorship beyond myself and where do I need to be in order to make the most impact for my community writ large and those are the three guiding tenets of my simple life and so as long as I can figure that out it could really be anywhere in the in the world or in the United States anywhere as long as I can meet those three criteria I feel like I am settled and so I can do whatever I feel empowered to do whatever because I feel like I am operating perfectly within myself trying over the course of my life to dampen everything that is not leading me towards whatever my purpose is supposed to be. And that can be myself and it can be other people. It can right. be situations, it can be systems, but it's about dampening the noise so I can hear what my purpose is actually supposed to be. I can hear myself as the conductor of my own life. And so I think for me, what that looks like in terms of the, of the everyday work is allowing myself to take as much time as it's going to take to actually get there. I am not suggesting that this is a thing I'm going to accomplish at some definable point. I think if I can figure out how to stay on that track for the rest of my life, even if it's a work in progress, that would be success. So mm -hmm. talking about redefining success, right? Like thinking about success less as a point and destination and really more as the journey, but not in the whitewashed way, but really more in the work and in Taking the time, and this connects to the earlier part of the conversation too, about what's next in appreciating how far you have come in as much as evaluating honestly where your next position is and how far you have to go. But it's the capacity to not only see ahead of you, but to earnestly know and understand and to feel good about how the steps you have taken to get to where you are currently standing. Mm. And so what it really is to me is about finding a balance between looking ahead so you can see where you're going, taking from behind you what is useful for the rest of the journey, mm -hmm. and then thirdly, having the capacity to still put those two things on pause for a bit and just appreciate, even from just a gratitude standpoint, where you actually are, right? Like I am living my wildest dreams a decade after I thought I was going to, right? I never imagined, even growing up free, in the Caribbean, I did not imagine myself as, a, as a P, having a PhD and being a professor and teaching. My family are teachers and I ran from teaching for a long time. I didn't want to be a teacher. And my mom laughs every time because she tells this story about me being five and like sitting down my teddy bears in like this giant classroom and giving this lecture on Egyptian hieroglyphics from my encyclopedia she had let me read. And she's watching me like teach this class at like five and six. And she's like, there was no way you were going to be anything other than a teacher, but I'm gonna let you be free friend and so of course now she has the last laugh is what am I about to be a professor obviously right like that's my job <laughs> that's my career right but I'm like oh, okay whatever I love but your it's a, but it is about taking those sort of small steps to do the work really and just also thinking about it as always being in progress and being all right with that and not letting that diminish my value as a human being because I am always working towards something mm -hmm. and so yeah. I think that has been the work. At, at the very least, the, 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 the key criteria for me so far has been to simply extend more kindness to myself because I deserve it. To yep. simply say that you working towards something and being in progress is good enough. To essentially say all the things I say to you in text to myself and to mean it and believe it and be like, and that, what I say to you all the time, and that is just fine. Wherever you are yeah. is just fine. If all you could do today was this, that is enough for today. Worry about it tomorrow. Tomorrow will take care of itself. But for now, this is what you have the energy to do. And we are taking all small victories. And it's really just the work of saying that to myself and believing it. 
and putting it into practice for my own thoughts about how my life should work. Because that's also the ego of being an academic, right? We are some of the smartest people in the world. And so we think everything should be easy. And we are also very hard on ourselves for not understanding something super quickly. Because right. we're so used to just being like, oh, I get it. About anything, complex ideas. We talk about complicated work. And so I'm just like, oh, it's easy. It's not. And being okay with being like, I don't know how I feel about this. I can't quite figure out what's happening here. Mm. And being comfortable with doing the work ultimately, but sitting in the discomfort of being like, huh, this is not quite where I need to be, but let's just see if we could inch a little bit forward. And if, as, if we could get just one step, eh, it'll be fine. That will be good enough. If we can't get one step, it will be good enough. We'll try again tomorrow, but not putting yourself into a place where your value is diminished because right. you are not making arbitrary progress on a treatment that you or yourself have created. It's a trap. It's a mental trap. Oh, I'm stuck in that trap all the time. I'm stuck Aloo. in that trap all Aloo. the time. <laughs> well, it's so interesting too, because I don't think, I mean, other people don't realize how many encouraging messages that I get from you on a daily basis. I mean, like, I just know, like, I'm an annoying friend. I'm always like, in your inbox. like Always. <laughs> but like, but that, that that's so interesting to me too, because on the flip side, I'm like, oh, but you're not doing this enough for yourself. And so my next question is like, how is it landing with you trying to focus on giving that love back to yourself? How is it landing? And like, what, what do you think is like one or two messages that you say to yourself that actually like you can feel when you say it? you're like, yeah, that helps get me back on track. One thing that has helped because I'm dissertating now is it is good enough. It is good enough because and it's hilarious, right? Because I think that I gave this talk to some younger students of color on Tuesday, talking about grad school and like what life was like. And they were asking all these really amazing questions. They were mostly first-generation Hispanic students. It was wonderful. Mm -hmm. Colleague of mine invited me. And I said to them, you have to give up perfectionism now. I promise you, it will make grad school so much easier. Give it up. It is not serving you. And perfection is the enemy of greatness. Jeanette Monet said that one time and I was mm -hmm. like, yep. Perfection is the enemy of greatness. And it also, to a point about burdens, is a burden that white folk do not hold themselves to. So why are you holding yourself to perfection? Why? Your mediocre work is actually quite fine. And you would not do mediocre work anyway, because that is not how you are socialized. So simply do your work. Grad school is hard enough. We don't need to add perfectionism to it. And so one thing that I say to myself now that I think lands with me is that it is good enough. In part because I have places to go, I have a job to take up, like there are actual material reasons to move on, which I think are helpful. But I think I'm getting more and more comfortable being like, this work is actually good enough. Could it be better? Always. Is this the best I could do in this moment? Possibly. And that will be just fine it mm. will actually be just fine and so i think that's one thing i say to myself no that is that is more that i feel i feel that it's not disingenuous even as i say it to myself and then the other thing that i think is 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 that i've been saying to myself that i feel more true now and i think it's been it's in part because of my re of my relationship that i'm currently in is that that no matter where i go i can create the community that i want and having that as a mantra, it will always be possible, with a little bit of help, for me to create the community that I need wherever I end up. Yeah. And I think because of that, what that helps me do is to not take things as personally in my relationship and in other ways, or just to feel like if things did not work out the way I want them to, that I would be able to survive, that the world would not crumble and shatter apart and everything wouldn't fall apart. To be like, actually, you would survive. 
And that's why things like heartbreak hurt so much because you want to be dead, but you're not. And that's the rub. That itself is the universe telling you, you are strong enough because you're actually still alive, experiencing the pain that makes you wish you were dead, right? But you're here living it, which in itself is the victory. You are still actually here. Yeah. Maybe not in the way that you imagine, maybe not happy every day, but you are physically in the world existing. And that itself is a victory. Yeah, all that resonates with me in so many ways. Even the, the comment you said about like, you're experiencing this heartbreak, then you, you get up the next day. It reminds me of like, a poem by Yersa Daly Ward. And I can't remember exactly how it goes, but it, it was basically like the world has ended for me so many times. And then I got up the next morning. It was like, it's very simple, but it's like, I remember reading that and being like, oh, like all of these moments where I thought like this depression is going to kill me. It's going to kill me. Like I, I believe it. And, and I felt this so many times and here I am still. Because it's life like, is nothing if not stubborn. You right. ready will be like, tonight is the night for me to die. And like clockwork, you will open your eyes the next day and be like, fuck, still here, I guess. I think the other big thing that, I've, that has been occurring to me that I'm now thinking about as I'm talking to you has been about being comfortable with the work mm. and genuinely comfortable with the work. Always being comfortable with the idea that your life is in process because you are alive. The fact that you are living suggests you cannot be stagnant in real terms right. you can have moments of stagnation in jobs or career, but but the, the life marches on your age marches forward and so the way that the, that the world works forces you to continue to press on yes even if you don't want to and so part of it is just about the fact that change is really the constant which we say in a kind of a trite way but it really is a, a, a way of thinking about you will always be in progress there is no destination to reach that you are not defining you have goals you're reaching for that you may or may not get to but more than anything else you are always in progress towards whatever is next for you good bad or indifferent the valence of that can be can be what it is but the, the reality in a broad capital R ways that you are always moving forward that is the nature of life that has also been helpful being okay being in progress because like you it's always like oh this is not the best work I could have done there's always this urge to want to to go back and to fix things and actually funnily enough Casey Lehman, the black writer who Charlize really was the one that turned me on to him in particular, he, he talks a lot about the value of revision. Mm. And I think because of that and the power of that, I have tried to approach work as thinking about it as snapshots of where I was at that point in my life or career. And so not applying later, more experienced knowledge to a situation that has already passed. Right. right, because I am the kind of person where the way my anxiety works is I perseverate over things. Like I replace scenarios and I, and I test on all these different variations of things, which is really good as, as, as a science, as experimental, but terrible for mental health because that period has passed. And quite honestly, my mind is theatrical and loves to exaggerate. It is never as big of a deal, nor as impactful as it seems in retrospect that it actually was. It was simply a moment. Right. And it did it serve whatever purpose it had to serve. And you have to allow that to just exist as it is. And so I think because of those things, I'm getting closer to thinking about how to simplify my life, right? Back to the, mm -hmm. the, the broader concept. But those are the things I've been trying that have been sort of landing on me now that I feel myself drawing closer to, but allowing myself to get there slowly, right? Immediately not saying, oh, I have to figure this out in a decade, right? Like I have to be <laughs> by the age of four, I have to be actualized in this particular way. Maybe. Maybe we will get there. Maybe we won't. 
and it will still be just fine. The question I always ask is, where is the ego about having to be bigger or more successful coming from? Who are you actually competing with? And it certainly can't be the mediocre white folk, right? And that always helps me. Who are you actually in competition with? Please look around and evaluate your colleagues properly and fairly. Who are you actually competing with? Is this the goal? No. Then why are you working harder? To get where to in get your current where. circumstance? To get where, like, where is this ego coming from? Like, why do you feel like you deserve that? Like, why do you feel like that is your responsibility? So I ask myself, why do you feel like that is your burden to bear? And most times for me as an academic, it's ego because you're already smart and you grew up being smart. You talk to all smart people. And we traffic in intellect as scholars. That is our currency. And so we spend so much time in this cerebral space, this tiny corner of the world that is important to us and could be important to other people, but is a tiny corner of the world. 2% of the world's population will ever get a PhD. And so for me, it's been helpful to always step outside and be like, who are you? Where is this ego coming from? Why do you need this? What is it doing for you? What are you unfulfilled in that you are trying to compensate for with this cognition, with this thought? What is wrong with being regular? What is wrong with being regular? What is wrong with being regular, right? Uh, I, I like just want to be a regular yeah, black bitch. <laughs> I just want to be a regular black bitch. A That's regular it. black bitch. Like, I'm just like, I don't want to be a magical, exceptional Negro. I also don't um, want to be a violent sadist. I would like to exist as a regular, complete, messy, con at times contradictory, sometimes confusing, deeply imperfect, somewhat immoral kind of full person. And I want you to see me in those ways too, as a complete person. Allow me to have my full humanity. That is the thing that white supremacy is interested in us never having, your full humanity. A whole sermon. A whole sermon. You knew. You knew when you when you agreed. I wasn't ready. This was gonna happen, sis. We talked about this every time. I tried to preface this. This will never be otherwise. I don't know any other way to exist. You know this. I do I know, know this. Your, I know your listeners also know this too. So here we are. I'm like, I knew the listeners wouldn't be ready, but I couldn't have anticipated me not being ready. I just I just want to be a that ready. is your ego talking. You are allowed <laughs> to also be surprised. I'm not sorry, I'm just going to not right now. Or what are some aspirational escapes? Yeah, I mean, one that I do know, but it's more of an aspirational escape, is one that we share, which is travel. Travel, particularly within communities. Like, I have wanderlust. My mom has been everywhere in the world, and I have inherited that from her, and so I love to travel. I love to be able to immerse myself in a different space and culture, and not because I wish to consume it, which is very, very white, right? I'm not going there to take something. What I'm going there, and this is an ego thing too, is to remind myself that even though I am important where I exist in the world, I am not the only important thing. Mm -hmm. There are literal whole societies running independent of me. There is life happening all over the planet. There are 7 billion other people existing on the planet, living their full lives unrelated to me. Mm -hmm. And so I find it humbling and an important way to remind myself that you are important, certainly, but you're not the only thing that is important. And I find travel is a good reset for being like, oh, really things work differently here, and that's just fine. Oh, they don't do this wild, nonsensical thing that we do in America. Ha, huh, figures, great. And it works out way better. And it works so well.
Oh, wow. So there's that. So one of the biggest gifts is always travel. Mm. My other big escape is, and this is where my like middle upper classes comes out to. Like my other big escape is in like elite art. So like opera, ballet, orchestra music. It doesn't have to be elite. Then I'll be happy. It's not as elite as it once was. But I grew up playing the piano. I have a minor in music in undergrad, and so I study classical music in particular. And so I have always had a deep love of that of that genre, among other things. And so I love ballets and operas. Like my dream is to have like a season season tickets to the Metropolitan so I can see every single opera in the Met season. Like, that's like on my like bucket list of things to do. But I love that. And I think I love the escapism of it. But I also love the work as it all is. I love the work. Like I love the fact that when you study music, it's one of those things where it's deeply emotive, it's deeply human, but it's also highly technical and you can't cheat. Same way in ballet. If you don't do the work, it's immediately apparent to everybody else. And I find that immediate transparency really interesting, right? Hmm. Like dancers are special people, choreographers too are special people, because what that is, is you taking an idea in your mind and manifesting it in the world through someone else's body in a way that we can actually understand. That is as close to creation as it's possible to get, which is why choreographers and composers are rare. They're rare because it's a creation level skill to be able to taste something in your head and manifest it in the world. It is a godlike kind of power. It's an approximation to creation ultimately. And so because of those things, I love, I love, I love the work. I love the energy. I love the, the, like, just the stories, the dramatic elements of it, the ability to go into places where I don't, I don't know what these people's lives are like, but I can step into them. But I mean, the other big thing is just broadly community. You know me, I'm an extrovert, as I'm sure your viewers know, your listeners now know. I'm an extrovert. And so I thrive on healthy community. I thrive on checking in on my friends and building relationships and just kind of seeing how I can support them and where are their lives going. And I'm also like, my other like escape is hyping other people's lives, which you know about me. Yes. Like my life might be a mess, but I certainly am never so much a mess. I can't encourage you in what you are trying to do. Like, I think if I could get a whole job that paid me a living wage as a hype man, I would firmly leave the academy. I would hire firmly. you. Because I live to hype my friends and my family. I live for it. Like I am, I am that friend that gasses people up. Mm-hmm. But I feel like that's also how I escape out of myself to, again, always to remind myself that this is a problem in your life, but it might not be a problem in, other, in anybody else's life. And also looking outward helps you get a sense of proportion. Mm. It's about poetry. And I remember coming across a poem about traveling and about the poet flying across some vista of land and saying, it's interesting that you get higher, but you see it at a big angle. You wonder why are we fighting over this small piece of land, this inconsequential thing called property. And people are out here killing each other and building arbitrary borders and, 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 and shaping society in these violent ways for the sake of, of land. And I'm just like, is this really what we're doing? And how inconsequential is that fundamentally, given that you cannot take it with you? Right. Right. And so I think, I like to, I think all those things, travel, opera, community, broadly connects me to my own inconsequence in a way that I don't think is violent, but it's a healthy reminder of just like, you are allowed to have your life, but it is not the only life that matters. And taking, a, taking time to step out sometimes allows me to see my problems in smaller ways that feel more manageable. Oh, I should also add, getting high is also one of my escapes. Yeah, because we are we are we are drug positive on this on this podcast. We are yes, getting high is another way I escape, and that I think has been really a really nice one. Because on occasion, 
I think I enjoy getting the different kinds of pies. And I think it's an activity I enjoy doing both by myself as well as community, which mm. I think is really nice. But I think for me, I always joke with Darren and some of my other friends that when I get high and I have a couple times a year, I feel like I have extremely esoteric eyes. And I often describe it to, 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 to Darren as I can, I feel like I can, I tune my own voice down enough to hear the background noise of the universe. That's how I describe it, right? Mm. I can feel like I have a sense of this is kind of where I need to be going. And I feel like artifice falls away, ego falls away, and I can see things more carefully. And honestly, even about negative things about myself and be like, okay, this is what this moment is trying to tell you. So maybe you should just go do this thing. Yeah. Um, and so I found that, that more recently, um, getting high and, and engaging in that space has been a really nice escape from the regular problems of everyday life, but also in a way that is then productive. But again, not in a violent way, but moving towards a broader yeah. sense of understanding myself. So let's say it that way, not productive, but but helping me always come to a truer understanding of who I am, which I think is the whole purpose of life. I think that even if life is imperfect, what I'm hoping for is that I move closer and closer and closer to understanding completely in that moment who I am or completely in every moment who I am and trying to stay within that sense of the, the, the work is to be within yourself completely. Mm -hmm to really feel like you are existing as fully as possible at all times. A good last note too, because we, as we all know, people try to make weed out to be some kind of evil substance, but it just, and I've ranted today. and ranted and ranted on this. I just don't get it. You're, you're drinking cocktails and we're smoking weed. What is the difference? Except for the fact that ours is safer. Right. <laughs> I mean, we thought about this, right? You know, my hypothesis on this is the fact that most things that have to do with drug restrictions in the United States are racist. It really has to do with, uh, with finding yet another way to constrain the lives of Black and brown folks in a particular way. And I think it's what, what is particularly insidious about it is connected to our earlier comment. People of color, Black folk in particular, use weed for a variety of things, health and otherwise. But one of the things that's really nice about weed is the, the experience of transcending where you might be Mm. That transcendence looks like temporary freedom. And that is too much for whiteness to countenance. Part of the legislation, I would always argue about weed, is not just about its criminality and its connection to blackness. What it really is is about this is a thing that allows us to be free, even temporarily. And that reality, that possibility, cannot function well in a white supremacist society. You have to contain it. Because what will happen to us if we are free regularly? What would happen to you if we thought if we thought about ourselves more in this way? And so my argument is always part of drug restriction around weed is racist, but it's particularly violent in this way of like, you can't even get high to be free. There is no version of reality where we wish for you to be free. And so we have to make every other version of reality inaccessible to you because you would then be free. It's like I'm plugging from the matrix and I'm like, this is why y'all hate this so much. It is a herb. And as you always point out, what's particularly violent about it is you all came and met that thing here. The natives are smoking it when you arrived. Now you have a problem. Please miss me with that bullshit. Please miss me. I can't. I can't. I can't. I can't. And we won't. That's the It's making. <laughs> it's too much. It's too real. I cannot believe we took it to freedom. Listen, you knew, you knew where I was going to go the minute you opened up this window for me to say this. You know I have a working theory about this, where I'm just like, this is how I think this is. 
I would be very keen to know what, what your listeners think about it. Maybe they'll agree, maybe they won't. But that really is my perspective. I need mm. people to tell us how they feel about this theory because it feels <laughs> it feels too real to me. And I refuse to continue. And I'm so glad I'm almost certain I'll get off here and my partner will be like, this person has written about this in this field, I am sure. So I'm not even claiming credit for it. That region yes. is how I think about it currently. I want to, okay. yeah, no, I want to dig into that with the first person to say this. Like, someone get me that name and number so we can talk Ooh, about it. So we can talk about this. That's a lot. That's more than this this episode can hold. But um, I want to thank you for joining me on the podcast today. Always. Thank you for having me. This is so fun. This podcast is a labor of love. And too often, labor by Black women happens without compensation. If anything in this episode resonated, and if you're taking anything along with you today, please consider donating to our Patreon or sending funds via Venmo. All information is available on that'snolongermyministry.com. Also, wherever you're listening to this episode, please consider subscribing and tuning in to next week's community release. Bye, fam.